This is an RNZ podcast. First word that comes to mind is shagging, bonk, rooting, <laughs> procreation, the ins and outs of sex. Okay. Uh, oh, bang. bang. What? Bang. It's called bang. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm, bang. <laughs> Do you remember an interview we did oh, ages ago where I asked you about how babies are made? Yeah. Do you remember what you said? No. You said tadpoles. <laughs> now you're a bit bigger. I was wondering if you could tell me what you know about how babies are made now. Okay. So, uh, so babies are made from the vaginas, but the only thing is you need sperms. How does the sperm get into the vagina? Well, the mum and dad have a special kiss and then uh, really gets into the vagina and it gets the sperm in. And then some of them die, but um, when they meet two eggs, they're called twins. Okay, one last thing. You always say that you want to have babies, and I always say that, like, you can have babies or not. It's up to you. But you found out that it hurts, and you were like, no thanks. So what are your current thoughts on it? Uh, get to have his of chocolate and watch TV and lie down and have lots of sleep. Yeah, so that's the good thing of getting pregnant. What's so the bad I- things is... The stomachache? Yeah. So what do you reckon? No thanks. Hello, welcome back to Bang. I'm Melody Thomas and this is episode five, Maybe Baby. Today parents will share how having kids changed their relationships. Plus clinical psychologist and sex therapist Nick Beats talks about some of the most common issues that he's seen facing new parents. And shopping for sperm on social media. We had some moments, the semen and I. As always, the discussions you're about to hear are of a frank nature. So if there are sensitive ears around, just come back and listen at another time. Let's get into it. If you're a parent like me, you will know all too well how much information is out there on what to expect when you're expecting. But there are a bunch of things that we still struggle to speak about openly and that I imagine so many parents, including myself, would love to have been able to prepare for, even just a little. Like what can happen to your sex life when babies enter the picture? What unique struggles do dads or non-breastfeeding partners face? And what can a couple do to continue to like each other through the huge challenges that having a baby brings? I called in a couple of mums and a dad with 10 children between us to talk about exactly that. The parents involved chose not to use their names, but they are real, and so are their stories. We started at the beginning. Because our first was such a surprise, I thought that we'd get pregnant really, really fast with our second, so I didn't kind of worry about it. It only took us about five months, but I think it's because it takes so long, like you've got to do it at a certain time. It was kind of like, now, let's do it now. Now, now, and because I had a boy as well, I had looked up all the ways to try and have a girl. <laughs> so for the first kind of two months, we really kind of, you know, had the lemons by the bed and like did it like very missionary. And What's the lemons? <laughs> oh, okay, okay. So apparently like boys hate citrus. So I was like trying to like, well, you, you know, eat. flush out the, the male <laughs> sperm. And then by the hang end on, of Hang on, hang on, hang on. Were you eating oranges during, <laughs> before, or no, after? No, 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 before, like weeks before. Just constantly just eating oranges, eating lemons, sucking on lemons, having lemons by the bed. Honestly, it was freaking... <laughs> 
crazy times. And crazy it didn't work. Times. And it and it didn't work because we. I just found it so hard to get pregnant. So I was just like, okay, now we're going to do it okay. every single damn day. And I think my husband even said to me, like, can you just like light a candle or something? Because seriously, this is like <laughs> ruining the romance of everything. I never want to have sex with you again. And it's really hard. We only tried for a few months, although I did have a couple of miscarriages at different times as well. So it wasn't totally smooth sailing. But the trying part can get so depressing the like when you do that pregnancy test every month and you tell yourself you're pregnant did you do that when you're like oh my boobs are a little bit sore yeah 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 and like checking under the light for this for the line to show up and like actually looking so hard that there actually was a line (laughs) and like my period actually not coming as well and going to the doctor and saying I have to be pregnant my parent my period hasn't come and she was like it's definitely not yeah well I, I wasn't even aware I think until we started trying that they don't recommend you seeing a specialist or anyone about fertility until a year into trying. Yeah. Like a year is normal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that feels like a, a long really time. long time to be in there. And then, and yeah, of course, couples go much, much longer yeah. than that. But we're not told that. And I think that's what's quite interesting is we are sort of with sex education in schools, it's often like you can just get pregnant by looking at a man or touching someone. On my personal experience, it can differ from pregnancy to pregnancy, but I'm wondering how intimacy within your relationship and how your own kind of sex drives were affected by pregnancy. With my first pregnancy, I had a really high sex drive, but unfortunately my husband was terrified of hurting the baby. He knew you know, physically that wasn't going to hurt the baby. But he, I think he was so protective of me that he didn't want to. And that I, we found that really, really difficult. Am I right in thinking you would have struggled to take his lower sex drive as anything other than rejection? Yeah, I totally felt rejected. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm. Uh, and we talked about it a lot, but what can you do, really? What did you do? I won't tell you what I did. <laughs> I'm going to assume what you did. You can assume what I did. Yeah, that was great. Actually. Yeah, brilliant. Oh goodness! When I got pregnant, all three of my pregnancies went off my husband completely. I couldn't stand to be touched. I didn't want to be looked at. I don't know what it was. I, I felt so bad for my husband because absolutely, when as soon as we got pregnant, that whole nine months, it was off the table. We didn't do. I think we did it maybe twice in our first pregnancy, and then nothing. But I felt like I needed something, like I needed to like orgasm or something. That is kind of when I looked to porn, like specifically girl on girl porn. I've never ever ever watched porn. Before I, I watched it in high school with my guy friends, but it was never ever a thing for me. I wasn't interested in it. I but I actively sought it out when I was alone. I would just hours, hours and hours and hours just watching girl on girl porn, and that's the only thing that I was really interested in. My Did husband doesn't even know about it. He's going to know about it. Now, <laughs> but every single pregnancy as well. It's like something goes off in my head, and I'm just like, I need to watch this now. I've talked about this with a few different women and I th- I feel like this might be something that people just don't talk about, turning to porn for the first time or experiencing an increased sex drive that means an increase in masturbation. Did it go away the moment the kids arrived? Yes. Like, it, it might be a mental thing as well. This is kind of like my approval. I get pregnant and I'm allowed to watch porn now. <laughs> so, and then afterwards I'm just like, okay, back to mum zone. 
Do you want to talk um, all about, I mean, in terms uh, of attraction or intimacy during pregnancy? Uh, we're probably low sex drive people, both of us. And then when my wife got pregnant, I think that was just basically the start of like lowering the amount of times that we had sex, basically all the way through pregnancy and certainly all the way through the very early years when um, breastfeeding was taking place because mm. she felt like she was giving her body to the kids. But it did mean that after that transition was over and the kids got older and the breastfeeding stopped, we did struggle for a little while to get back into it. We were actually kind of forgotten what to do with each other. We were, you know, mm. So we had to start all over again. It's come back up again now, but I feel like we've got to work harder now and we've got to spend more time with time that we don't have, you know, to actually form a deeper relationship that's not just based on logistics and scheduling and being virtually comatose tired by the end of the night. In the pregnancy stage when you were looking forward to bringing a baby into your lives and how your relationship might change... Were there things you were warned about or things that you anticipated in terms of how not just your like physical connection might change but also just the rest of it, the emotional connection, that kind of thing? I think the main thing for a guy to get his head around is that you're no longer number one. You're kind of used to being, oh, yeah, so I'm the centre of her world, and then suddenly you're so not. You're a gathering and transportation unit, <laughs> and that's just the way it should be. But it's certainly a shock to the system, and then you realign yourself around the kids too. Mm. I think where you get uh, dysfunctional families is where the dads never accept that and then you actually end up in a situation where they're vying for attention with their own wife, with their own kids and it becomes very nasty very quickly and that's sad, isn't it? Yeah, so for men who are on the precipice and about to become dads, is there any advice you would give about accepting, you know, to help facilitate the acceptance of that role? I think you've just got to stop being so damn selfish and um, you've got to start getting really into the domestic side of things really fast. And if you don't do it, I don't think you would live in a modern family. And then you won't cope. Your family won't cope. Your wife certainly won't cope if you're not coping. Um, and you have to work a lot harder than you've ever worked in your life because you've got to work your ass off at work. And then when you get home, you've got to do your second job. And you often will find yourself thinking, God damn it, I'm working harder than anyone else in this family. But don't kid yourself, mate, you're not. If you go home and, and, and you sit there with those kids all day, you'll you'll be gagging to go to work. <laughs> yep. <Yes. laughs> Another thing that doesn't get talked about much around um, pregnancy, labour, intimacy is birth trauma. Can anyone here speak to the physical effects of childbirth and how that might have affected their bodies and confidence and those kinds of things? Um, I had with my firstborn an episiotomy and a third degree tear. Do you want to say what an episiotomy is? It's when they cut. What do, what do they, they do? Kind they of cut, so yeah, so they cut you instead of they instead of tearing. Uh, yes. Controlling the amount you tear yes. open. Yes. Yeah, something like that. Um, and then it took yeah probably at least a year where I didn't experience some form of discomfort or pain, and certain positions weren't um, painful. So how did you negotiate that for that first year, especially as a couple that had quite a high sex drive? Lots of patience, lots of lube, lots of like communicating. We just talk really openly about it, and if it hurt, I think the biggest thing was just trying to find different positions because I still had the same sex drive. Like I, I wanted to. Yeah, I think a lot of it was mental for me. I just didn't like the thought of something going in there that I have just pushed out a baby's head and I'd had that kind of trauma. I found yeah. it very traumatic. My two births after that first one, I had home births 
and they were beautiful and amazing. And I found that kind of helped heal that traumatic experience. Mm. And especially with your firstborn, where you know you're never quite prepared for labour. Yeah, definitely. I felt like a failure after mm. I had my first. Did you find any roll-on effects from that trauma? Not really. I remember the first time we did it, though, after our first, and I was kind of thinking, it's going to be so different this time. I feel like I look different down there. I feel like I'm not as, like, tight as I have been, obviously. And I remember actually doing it and feeling, like, really uncomfortable and then I had a letdown and, like, I was there was just milk everywhere. Yeah, I and those. I was just like, I am so gross right now. I don't want to do this anymore. And so, yeah, there was a kind of like a few months after where we were trying to find ourselves again. But after we actually started doing it again, our sex has never been better. It's been so, so good. Like, so good. So good. <laughs> Really good. <laughs> what was it? Very, was it very, good? very good. <laughs> good, good, good. And one of the things that has affected that is your husband's vasectomy. Yes. Now we're in a space where I feel like we're more in love than we have ever been. He's seen every single inch of me as well, which didn't happen before we were pregnant. So there's no condoms, no contraception. Everything's very kind of like... Do me now, like. So was that, what was what was good about that? Had, had you never used other forms of contraception other than condoms before? Or? I came off the pill when we were at university, and I swore I'd never go back on it again because it just totally ruined my emotions. And so, not having to use a, use condoms anymore is a massive thing, and it's opened up another world for us as well. Like, like in terms of like talking and what we do and our positions and when we do it and. Like dirty texts and things like that. You're an inspiration. Stop it. Hashtag goals. <laughs> um, how long have you two been together? Uh, 11 years now. It's nice to hear about a couple who's been together for 11 years and who can say their relationship is the best and almost most exciting that it's been in, those, in, in terms of sex. For you, listening to these two who have had quite high sex drives typically talk about yeah. things being the best they've ever had, how does that make you feel? Oh, there's a part of you that goes, oh, that sounds good. But then there's another part of me that goes, oh, that sounds exhausting. So <laughs> <laughs> I guess I don't want to set up the standards so people listening maybe who don't have such high sex drives feel like there's something wrong with them or wrong with their relationship. Well, exactly. Yeah, I don't think you should feel like that at all. I think you should have as much sex as you want to have and not any more or not any less. It just depends who you are. And, and like for us as well, we go through massive dry spells. Sometimes, honestly, it'll be a month or like a month and a half or two months. And then we do it, and then it's just like, okay, I want to do it, I want to do it. It's like something kind of flicks. So so. There's no normal. There's no normal. No. There's no normal. Clinical psychologist and sex therapist Nick Beats works at Couple Work in Auckland. Nick, we're going to look directly at some of the things that were brought up in that discussion in a minute, but just to start off, mm. what are some of the most common issues that you see being faced by new parents? Well, I mean, I think the unbelievable sort of 24-7 demands of a child, I mean, you, you've got to experience it to understand it. And I think if one parent is doing that largely by themselves, that's a real problem. If you're not experiencing, you don't understand it. And there's research to support that, that couples who do that, what they call it kind of equalitarian parenting, where they really try and do half of everything each. 
they have less conflict about everything except for parenting. Right. <laughs> <laughs> they have more conflict about parenting than couples where there's traditional gender roles. Ah, oh, interesting, because they're equally invested in that. Yeah. I guess empathy is such a big part of that, isn't it? Because when you yeah. have young children, you get can get into a pattern where you're kind of competing to see who's the who's worse off. Absolutely. There, there actually aren't enough resources of time and energy to go around. There just isn't. And it's like, who goes without? I think there's another piece that I think doesn't get talked about. The, the more important somebody is to you, the harder it is to do intimacy. Intimacy is about being open and vulnerable. You know, I use this hackneyed thing, but it's, you know, intimacy is into me see. Mm. I let you see what's really going on with me. So intimate interactions are often a bit uncomfortable, sometimes very uncomfortable. The more important you are to me, both emotionally and structurally, how much of my life would have to be pulled apart if we separated, then the more threatening it is if we have differences. Mm, there's more there's on the line. More, more on the line. When you're talking about a couple of parents who are sleep-deprived, perhaps mm-hmm. feeling taken for granted, mm-hmm. and who can't see what they valued in their partner when they got together, like yep. what kinds of practical tips can you give them on how to be intimate and how to reconnect? Well, I think um, the first thing is to realise that closeness and intimacy are two different things. And realising that we need time to have intimate conversations. So, I don't know, um, how we deal with you know, getting our child to, to, to learn to sleep. Now, that's a healthy conflict, trying to work out what's the right thing for our family and our child. That's a good thing. It's an intimate thing. And there's got to be time for those conversations. But time is hard to come by. As well as time for closeness. Mm. Couples need to prioritise couple time. Mm. I mean, that's something I've heard probably... Over and over again, I'm sure. Yeah, well, in each of the last few episodes, definitely, yeah. You know, a lot of couples actually do, you know, have a date night, but then the two people go out together, and one of them is expecting it to be close. Let's just enjoy being together. And the other person's thinking, all right, finally we've got a chance to talk about some stuff. Neither of them is wrong but they end up having this horrible night. Oh, I've been there. <laughs> yeah, we've all been there, Yeah, you know. And in my belief, um, if you don't have the difficult conversations to talk about what's really going on, the closeness doesn't last. When you're in one of those intimate conversations and your partner's trying to tell you something and you're trying to get your point across, mm-hmm. what is the best way to reach something like agreement or compromise? I mean, I, you know, Are there any tips for that? You know, there are many tips. Yeah, right. <laughs> I spend a pretty significant part of my working week <laughs> talking about you know, mm-hmm. that kind of thing. You know, s- simple things is have an agreement to be able to use time out. Like if the conversation is clearly going nowhere because one or both of you is shattered, upset, stop and, and agree on a time to come back and start the conversation again. Another thing is, you know, try and keep your focus on the big picture. You know, one way to, to define a relationship is how you talk to each other and how you treat each other. So whatever the issue is, make sure that you don't treat the issue, you know, or getting your point of view across as more important than the relationship. And if you are practicing these kinds of things, do you get better at it and find that those kinds of conflicts become more easy to resolve? Uh, Yeah, I mean, but it's a complex thing. And like anything, it takes a lot of practice and a lot of trial and error. I mean, it's not that long ago that I taught my kids to drive. 
And it really reminded me. And, and, you know, driving a car is really easy compared to negotiate about whether we're going to have sex tonight or not. Sometimes when we have these discussions about long-term relationships, I hear it from the point of view of a younger person not in a relationship going, negotiating over whether we're going to have sex tonight? Yeah. (laughs) That sounds exciting. Yeah. Yeah. Well... (laughs) Welcome to the real world. You know, your TV and your movies and your books are full of lies. I mean, there's a lot of research about sex in in later life now because, of course, all the baby boomers are aging. And what the research consistently finds is that the people who are, you know, in, in old age, 65 and up, are saying they're having the best sex of their lives. Now, it's clearly not the most athletic sex of their lives, not the most, you know, intense sex of their lives necessarily in terms of physical sensations, But the emotional impact, the meaning of the sex they're having is huge. Now, you only get that through having worked through decades of conflict. So it's not, you know, it's not all bad news on the sexual front at all. We had a discussion with some parents about the ways that intimacy and desire have changed through their journeys to parenthood. And Mm -hmm. one of the couples who said they're having amazing sex talked about how there are still months where they go with without sex entirely and they find Mm -hmm. that it's like a scratch that once you've itched it you kind of end up on a roll for a while absolutely yes it's a very very common thing and there's all sorts of things that feed into the whole kind of you know use it or lose it notion both at a physiological level but also you know being in that uh, space to be open and vulnerable if you're going to have that kind of sex it's kind of like the more you go there the more it feels like a comfortable place if you've, you know, if you've sort of retreated back into yourself and kind of walled yourself off, the longer you leave that, the, the more that shell kind of grows around you. Obviously, in that discussion, we heard different views on this. But I imagine one time when you're at risk of growing that kind of shell is during pregnancy. There's a lot of individual variation, but the general thought is that first trimester when the hormones are really hitting and, you know, a lot of women are, are morning sick and so forth, you know, there's a decrease in interest. Second trimester, if that's settled down, you're getting a lot of blood flow into the breasts and into the genitals. So there's you know extra blood flow without you having getting getting aroused, mm. and so you get much more sensitivity. And so you know a, you know a touch that might have been quite neutral on your breasts or on your labia, you know suddenly feels really you know like like it's electric. You know a lot of women just find it a lot more intense and a lot more rewarding. Yeah. Typically in the third trimester, interest drops away. And the first couple of months after um, giving birth, most women, not all, but most women, you know, are not that interested. And obviously breastfeeding does tend to decrease libido. Yeah, what's that about? Is that just I have had someone on me all day long, please don't you get on me too? (laughs) Um, I certainly think there is an element of it. I think there's also a whole hormonal thing going on. Mm. I mean... Breastfeeding is, you know, technically described as a psychosexual experience. Is it? Right? Yeah. It's really physically intimate. You know, the bonding chemicals that are released when you're breastfeeding are the same that are released during orgasm. No. Now, there are other chemicals that are released during orgasm that aren't during breastfeeding, but oxytocin is released during childbirth, during breastfeeding, and during orgasm. If only it felt the same, I would just, we'd all be breastfeeding forever. <laughs> Clinical psychologist and sex therapist Nick Beats. 
We're bringing Nick back to the RNZ studios to answer live questions from you in nights on August 30th, just after 8.30pm. So if you want to hear more from him or if you want to ask your own question, you can download the RNZ Vox Pop app and put it there. Or if it's too late and that's already happened, just go to rnz.co.nz and search Nick Beats, that's N-I-C, to hear what he said. We have time for one more story. Now, we all have different understandings of sex and sexuality depending on how we were raised and what we learned at school. But the basics are fairly well understood. Sperm plus egg makes baby. But for so many couples, conception is not that straightforward. This is Taryn Kiyakovich. There is 10 years between my youngest sister and I and you look back at photos of us and, as kids and I'm her, you know, I had her on the hip as soon as I could and I, I used to find it really hard to leave her going to school. I've always wanted a family. For Taryn, this was never going to be an easy road. So it wasn't long after she got together with her partner now that the baby talk came up. We got some advice that we should start looking into how we were going to make it possible and I was 23 at the time. How old are you now? 29. Mm. Yeah. So that so it takes a long time. road. Yes. Yeah. So as it was once described to us, we have something called social infertility. So there are no physical fertility issues, but we have a missing ingredient. Mm. So should we go meet your family and find out more about that? I would love for you to meet my family. I can't wait to meet your family. <laughs> Taryn and Sasha live on one of those wonderfully leafy Auckland streets that many of us in Wellington secretly covet. They've been married for nearly four years, and anyone who knows them will say they are a really entertaining and lovely couple. Their dynamic is hilarious. Don't stick it right in my face. The kind of fond bickering that only comes from years together. Oh, you're going to annoy me because you're being provocative on purpose. No, no, here, darling, you hold it. But when it comes to starting a family, they're missing one important ingredient. I'll let this little rascal introduce the next bit. The only thing is you need sperms. We got offered sperm. At, in bars when people were drinking. We had a guy come up to us in the supermarket oh, who I had distantly knew, just going, if you ever need some sperm, come and see me. In the fruit section. But this is the thing that a lot of couples who are going through a similar experience will, will come to figure out, is that everyone will offer you, particularly when they're drinking over, you know, having a great time, but it is a very, very different kettle of fish when it comes down to it. Taryn and Sasha's sperm quest started with friends, straight guys specifically. But time and time again, they found that potential donors would start off really excited only to drop out as things started to become more real. So we went back to the drawing board and we thought, why don't we try a gay guy? You know, they, they're probably more likely to understand some of the challenges we're facing. It also gives them a, an opportunity to be involved in a baby's life because it's definitely harder for two guys to have a baby than it is two women because we obviously have, have uteruses. Yes. Yeah. And so we thought, OK, how, how do we find gay guys, right? We know a couple, but it's probably better to not go with friends because you can have those harder conversations with somebody you don't know. So we went to Facebook. My friend had just had her 30th birthday and it was Beyonce themed. So you can imagine how many gay guys there were in the photo. So I opened up a tab and I said, hey, how's it going? Happy 30th birthday. This is going to sound so strange, but I was wondering if you could help me. (laughs) Dot, 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 dot. Sasha and I want to start a family and we're looking for a donor. We'd like that to be a gay guy. She writes back within seconds, OMG, 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 leave it with me. She straight away opens up another tab and messages 30 gay guys, which she then told me later. These lesbians I know are fantastic and they want to start a family is anyone interested in helping them donate sperm? 
insert photo and then leaves it six hours before she checks again and she had had everybody reply going um, I'm keen or I'm okay I'm, I'm not really in, at that stage of my life and so she just went with the first person that replied who ended up being her brother <laughs> and so we ended up having this long lunch and then you know it was going really really well I knew at that moment that he was he was our one but it definitely wasn't you we know. took our time, I think, more yeah. more because we'd been... It wasn't straightforward. It wasn't like, let's go to the clinic tomorrow and do this. No, it no. Was it was a sort of a year and a half of, the journey. Of, of getting to know each other and going through the process. And, you know, a lot of back and forth. Yeah, a lot of and back and forth. He wasn't quick to make his decision, which I now, looking back, I just think that's so that's cool. Awesome. But eventually the trio decided to make it happen and they thought that they would start at a fertility clinic for various reasons to do with legal paper trails as well as resources like planning and counselling. But after a few inseminations didn't take, they decided to change tack. By this stage, we're at about clocking up, I think we were around eight to ten, you know, with legal fees, all of the testing, it adds up. And then every time our donor goes in to donate, you're paying for them to assess it and to store it. So we just thought, let's just do it at home. We'll use a syringe. It's like ten cents syringge. Yep. And our donor... And a cup. That's it. That's all it was. Our donor would go into the bathroom and donate very kindly and bring it through the other room and he'd go away and shut the door and and we would inseminate using a syringe and it's not sexy, it is not particularly fun. It's very funny though, watching your partner with her legs in the air trying to you know make it all happen and at times I didn't even turn up for that bit because... <laughs> No, at, at, at the end of the day, basically, at the end of the day, it was very, it was admin. Just like, do this I thing. tried to make it all special at first, and I was like, this is... Candles and stuff. Yeah, yeah. nah, it was <laughs> just like, just, listen, it's, you, you just have to get it in there. One time, I actually had to transport it in the car from his house, from his letterbox. He came out wearing a lover lover and put it in the letterbox, and I, and it was in this beautiful woven little basket thing, and I... She put the seatbelt around it in the car, so I shouldn't even knew this. And Beyonce came on, and I love Beyonce, so I thought this is a sign. You know, we had some moments, the semen and I. How long did it take to conceive? It's, we always debate this whether it was. It was four goes. It was no, nah, it was actually three goes. We initially started being, you know, clinically minded with, you know, this and that and all these like, you know, we should do this. And we did. Actually, at the end of the day, the thing that worked, the time we did it at home, which made our baby. Um, was it's just a volume issue, okay? So this is it's a tip a, for anyone listening. Yeah, this is a tip. It's just get yeah, lots as in much there as much as possible. Just get a lot in there for a good five, six days. And so, tell me about finding out you were pregnant. Okay, well, when you're trying, you buy all the tests and things, and then you know you sit there for a few seconds waiting nervously. And we had done that a few times, and it's quite disheartening. I can't really describe what it's like but you just feel really blue afterwards if it's not positive so we were on our fourth attempt third third attempt Sasha it was the third month you're being pedantic okay I had said to Sasha I've got a really strong feeling Taryn has strong feelings all the time and they're not not usually right (laughs) so I was sitting at work and I was like I was was actually thinking this is the time we should test so Sasha goes okay I'm at work I'll test she's a doctor so she could test quite easily and she wrote me back and said not pregnant don't ask me to do that again and I felt really guilty I was like oh no I inflicted that on her and anyway I was sitting in a meeting a week later and I had that rush like this feeling I was like this is definitely the time. We're pregnant. I could just feel it. I said to Sasha, 
come on, please, can we do it? So she wouldn't relent on the night. Uh, it's because the night she'd time. made me test so many times. Yeah, and she was I disappointed. Was, I was just like, I'm sick of feeling bummed. So just anyway, so. Sasha was jumping in the shower and I said, Sasha, pee into this right now. I'm not even sure how she was feeling while she was in the shower, but I could not look. And then I sort of crept over and had a look through one eye to shut the other. And it said pregnant and all the lines came out really strongly. And I screamed and I ran in. I was like, oh my gosh, you're pregnant. Ah! And then we were so excited. And for hours, it just felt like a total blur. I told heaps of people straight away again the game plan was to keep it under wraps but like, I had to tell my family and my best friends within about literally 10 minutes and our donor so many people knew I was like oh my god <laughs> it was so incredibly exciting as many of you know the worrying part is far from over once you discover you're pregnant but as the non-carrying parent Taryn had a whole bunch of other things of her own to ponder I always thought that I would be fine and that yeah Sasha will have our first baby and it doesn't matter that I'm not biologically linked to our child and I'll be totally cool with that and yeah it's going to be you know this big one big happy family having the donor being involved and right now it is but I felt incredibly threatened at times and that is something that has come out of me and I've been so surprised at but I just had to sort of take a deep breath keep reminding myself that it is for the greater good for our son that he knows his dad Mm. yeah Yeah, because I imagine that's probably quite common that feeling of being threatened or left left out or definitely mm. and so what was really helpful was talking to some of our friends that have been in similar positions you know the other parents saying to me I felt the same way and that was so comforting to know that I, I wasn't the only person and that it wasn't this ugly side of my character, some flaw that meant I was jealous and I just had to keep reminding myself why we were doing it and tell everybody you know, close to me how I was feeling so that they could provide comfort and reassurance that my role is equally as important as every other person within the dynamic. When the baby arrived, I just felt so incredibly grateful for our experience. Because of New Zealand laws, you know, I think it's so important for the public to know how much that actually affects a family. There's a few little laws that need to be amended. I think some of them are a little antiquated, but I remember when I registered our son's birth, you can do it online now, which is so fantastic, is I put the mother in, you know, Sasha's name, and then other parent. So it didn't even say father, and I put in my name, click submit, done birth certificate arrives you know that was my first experience and I felt so grateful that I didn't have to fight anybody or prove anything at that point I was just able to be when you update laws to reflect how people are living and allow them to live then you are essentially mobilizing part of your population to thrive too and that can only be a good thing We actually just had an appointment with our fertility clinic on Friday where we discussed how we're going to approach the second baby and we never planned this from the outset but what we've decided to do or to attempt to do is to uh, for me to carry our second baby but using Sasha's embryo so that our children have that link that they are of the same biologically and you and you there's something about being pregnant that you want to experience yeah so for me hell yes I'm not doing it next there's no sort of assumed like oh just because oh, you're a doctor that's more important or because you're, you're the woman you're going to have to stay yeah. at home and raise the kids or yeah. if you're the man this is all on you you know you have to go out there and bring home the bacon and stuff god I wish I could have shared that part <laughs> yeah no honestly um, she's got a uterus she's using it 
And Taryn and Sasha's journey to baby number two starts in November. Good luck. That's it for this episode of Bang. Don't forget we're going to have Nick Beats live in nights just after 8.30pm on Wednesday, August 30th. So send a question through if you have one. You can do that on the RNZ Vox Pop app or you can email bang at radionz.co.nz. Thank you so much for listening. You can subscribe on iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts and do rate or review us if you get a chance. We're also really easy to find on the new RNZ app. You can download that for free from the App Store. Bang was produced by me, Melody Thomas, with special assistance from Marcus Stickley, engineered by William Saunders, and the executive producer was Tim Watkin. Next time in the penultimate episode of Bang, we explore just some of the huge range of experiences of those in their 50s and early 60s, from intimacy after bereavement and illness through to sex toys. 